Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States of America. I'm Tim. I'm joined again by my co-hosts, Lavelle and Carlo. How are you today, gentlemen? Pretty good. Pretty great. So it took us a while to get this episode rolling, to get this episode recorded. It's been a number of weeks beyond the point at which we should have posted an episode. I blame that to a confluence of real-life events, of holiday shenanigans, of being too busy gaming to actually record an episode, which is probably the best reason of all not to record an episode. There has been a lot happening, I feel like, in the Philadelphia gaming scene. There's been a lot of tournaments, there's been a lot of activity, a lot of things going on. So while I do feel bad that we didn't get an episode done last month, I feel pretty good about what happened instead of getting an episode done. We do post a lot on our um, Instagram. So if you're not following us on Instagram, you're mu- you're missing great shots of my defeat. Because <laughs> they all start so cheery, like, look at this. Going to rush across the board. And then, ass man standing. <laughs> oh, man. As always, let's kick off episode 19 with Hobby Press. Carlo, why don't you lead off our conversation as to what you've been up to in the 40K Hobby Progress section? Well, it's going to be a short Carlo segment, because... Projects I'm working on are top secret. Okay, oh. well, let's get Monica to tell us what, she's, <laughs> what she sees on your hobby table. Monica? Well, he's working I made, sure, on. I made sure to send her out just for this reason. I made her relaying information of sensitive, you know, material Listen, on this podcast. What uh, we're going to have to do, Tim, is invest in a hobby drone with a little camera. <laughs> <laughs> Those Terminators? <laughs> let's just let, let let's tease what you're working on because I honestly have no idea. It, it is related, correct? It's related. One of them you're involved in, if you know what I'm talking about. And no, Lavelle, it's not for you. Oh, <laughs> 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 um, yes, it's technically a new army, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Cool, cool. Are you on your space wolves or anything there that you can talk about, or should we go right over to Lavelle? Um. I haven't, but I've been thinking real hard about it, Tim. I've been thinking real hard about it. Yeah, I've been looking at that. Uh, I'm going halvesy on the Tooth and Claw box with uh, John, and because we're gonna keep going with our uh, his his uh his kids uh, playing Tyranids, so he's gonna do their half for him. And then uh, you know uh, I'm I'm going with uh, you know I need some of those new Primaris things because I do I do actually I'm in the in the few of the primaries. I, I like the primaries models, you know, so I want to get more of those. Have you seen, and this is what I'm struggling with hobby-wise, have you seen those new bundles? Like, oh, this is so, un- it's cruel and inhuman. The timing, especially the timing this time of year, it's like, oh, I should get myself something for the holidays. Oh, I'm doing all the shopping. Why don't I just add one of those new army battle forces to my cart? It's very unfortunate. Let me tell you something. I was never really an Imperial Fist fan until I saw Sasha's army. His army is absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But the package that they have together, that, that that they put out, looks really, really good. But one of the things that really that I'm really struggling with, the Primaris Interdiction Force, even comes with a uh, yeah, it comes with the repulsor, yeah. And the Adeptus Mechanicus Fist. I looked at that and I said, you know what? I could probably buy two of these and have a whole Adeptus army. It's you know, it's a, uh, it's it's just a great way to onboard. They look really, really good. Yeah, very tempting. Hopefully, maybe the folks over the last year or so that have bought some of the smaller starter kits, this is a great way to build on, like, a start collecting box or um, No No Fear or one of those smaller two army packages. You know, this is a great way to build out one of those forces into a, a fully fled. No, I didn't think, but you quite a bit of points for for a pretty good deal on those. Let Let me express a hobby. Uh, a piece of hobby advice is purely, purely my opinion here. If you're going to do a 
separate 40K army. And I do have to say, maybe I'm not the right person to say this, but I think there's a lot of value in having multiple armies. You can play an army lots and lots and lots, and you can get a lot of benefit that you revive your game by switching armies. It's like learning, and so it's a, it's a really different, and that's one of the things that I love about 40K. They give you a difference. Not necessarily all good, but different. And so um, the way they have, in, in my opinion, the bundles and the pricing points are really, really good. For example, um, I, I, my Justin bought, um, he went hand with another guy on a tooth and claw. But you can get a tooth and claw box and start a space wolf. And, you know, those are different things to think about. Now, having said that, this is my hobby progress. I finished my Imperial and I have a Castellan now that's painted the same color as my Castigator Forge World, which is really, really good. It's making me think about the other models. And I have actually put them on the board, and I did like playing with them. Um, I played in a very large game against Mike T. We played at Alternate Universes, and we um, we played a very large game. And we started kind of late, but we were able to finish it. He has a huge, huge Blood Angel army, all classic models all classic models and we had a really good game there and i played that along with um i think i did a casino in regards but that was pretty good so i finished out my my that and again i'm gonna that's why i did this in a minute i uh, as i said uh, later in, in the segment we'll go over i purchased another uh could not for my custodian i also purchased a, no a number of custodies units now i have a huge custodies force i think right now and it's not a lot of models because of the point cost i have probably about 35 to 4,000 points but one of the things that i noticed is that i need a nice build right and so so what i'm really doing is i have really minimum unit size and i'm kind of flexing with that with some of those models i did not have enough checks for a classic jet bike army that you're seeing a lot of but i, I like playing large games and i want to be able to build an all custodies force so i, I finished out I had some custodies models that I purchased. I also finished up. I was filling in this new Necron. Um, I have a Necron, new Necron dynasty. I have a red, red and silver dynasty that looks really good. And I have a green and gray dynasty that looks really good. And I did that because there were some of the newer models that I like. One would build two different dynasties on the table in a large game. And them look lazy. So uh, I set out and I was able to flesh out my kill team. Sadly, I have not gotten a kill team army game in at all. But I've got everything I need to play. <laughs> And lastly, I am going through my, um, we're, we're going to talk about this a little later, my Blackstone Fortress. And I have to start putting those guys together. And I'm really looking forward to getting that. That has been my prime. Oh, that's not true. Last thing. <laughs> Last thing. I have finished an, uh, my um, Dark Angels. I actually have team a team game this Thursday coming out. Uh, 2,000 points per player, two players per side. It's going to be Dark Angels and Ultramarines probably versus uh, Chaos. And so I could completely the first company. So it's all Terminators. Because the Terminator Army, I have the Terminators, uh, and complete Terminator Army, Interrogator, Chaplain, a Chapter Master, uh, Ancient, and two um, uh, Raiders, the different kinds. And that together is 2,000 points. I got to tell you, I've been going through the book and everything, and I've got everything I need to play. I don't know how good they're going to be, but for a narrative game, it's going to be really, really good. What about you, Tim? It has been a while, so there's quite a bit of stuff going on. Um, I, did, uh, I made some progress on a Primaris Aggressor Squad. Um, yeah. that, you know, One of the reasons why I haven't been totally thrilled with how my Iron Hands have been playing is I'm missing a lot of models that, are, that, I, that you need to have to be at least having fun in the current meta, right? I need some more Primaris stuff. I have the whole box, the whole Dark Imperium box that I have not even done anything with. So I'm going to end up building all the Space Marine stuff that's in the Dark Imperium box and kind of grafting that into my Iron Hands army over the next couple of months. 
you you really just you have to have Primaris Marines point, and I think by virtue of that you have to have a repulsor tank to get them anywhere in the game uh, at this point to be uh, yeah maybe not super competitive but to enjoy the game a bit more than I have. Been. Um, the Iron Hands just haven't been haven't been performing properly for me. So so I did a little bit more work on the aggressors. I kind of looked at the stuff in the Dark Imperium box. I started thinking about how to you know how to treat them a little bit differently than my first go round of the more traditional uh, Space Marines for my Iron Hands. So I'm going to come up with a new paint for the Primaris guys so that I can maybe you know either have them so they like an, an auxiliary to the main force. You know, so I'm not trying to mix them up and make them look all matchy-matchy. Um, I'm looking forward to that, and I think that will help me, you know, kind of put a new shine on that Iron Hands army for me, which I'm kind of excited about. Have you started painting them? I have started just the aggressors. I've made really good progress on the aggressors, which I know are really great models, and they fit, they'll fit. they fit right into my existing Iron Hands army, and, and they'll, they'll do really well in terms of how they perform. I like those a lot. Also, I bought the um, Orc Kill Team box set. Which I will, which is actually a really great deal because it comes with. I think we talked about this last episode. If, if I did, forgive me. Um, it comes with the galvanic servo hauler um, kind of chain pack, which fits in really well with all of the Shadow War Armageddon terrain that I have and have yet to paint. Um, so I was really glad to get this, that box because you get the booklets, you get the cards, you get the or you get the um, the tokens, the models. You get five burnas in this case. I, I'm going to do them all as burnas, and you get the. Uh, galvanic servo haulers. So I'll add those burnas to this orc army that I currently have just primed. Um, and I did, was able to get in some Kill Team games. I signed up for the, the campaign that they were hosting at Red Caps. Unfortunately, my schedule last month was really weird, um, so I was only able to get in a game here and there, so I'm not really in the campaign anymore, but, you know, such is life. I really wanted to do it, but timing just didn't work out in any way, shape, or form. But I've been trying to get in one game a week, either, you know, here at the house or at the store or something, just to, just to you know, just to get a game in a week. I haven't been able to play much uh, big 40k games, so I've been trying to scratch the itch with a little bit of uh, Kill Team, and I have been enjoying it. It is fast, it is fun. I like the fact that the the, uh, the terrain is so compact and tight and small, and it's easy to navigate. It's everything that you'd expect from a 40k skirmish game, and I think that's really positive. I have a questions and concerns that we'll talk about, I think, when we talk about some more, some of the new GW stuff that's just come out. It's not perfect, and I don't think, whereas I, I, I know we all really liked how they started to roll out Kill Team, I think it might be getting a little bit overcomplicated, but we'll talk about that in a minute. In other news, I found the last two Shira Halpernian novels. It's a three-book set. They appear in as an omnibus. It's all grouped together called Enforcer, and you can buy Enforcer pretty much anywhere. I know they have it at uh, Barnes & Noble, for instance. The The second book was called Legacy. It's all about rogue traders. I didn't really know. I knew like what rogue traders were and how they kind of fit into the, 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 the universe, the 40K universe, right? But I didn't realize that it wasn't just the rogue trader's main battle cruiser, so to speak, right? It was actually a flotilla of ships. It was basically like a little fleet that was under the command of a rogue trader. And a rogue trader is, is like a dynastic family. That that charter, that identification as a rogue, gets passed down from generation to generation of a family. And the novel was amazing because, again, the, like the first Shira Calpurnia novel that I, that I read, there were no, there's no space marines. You know, there's no, this is all just humans trying to figure stuff out in this really strange little backwater world. And this one was no different. This was a rogue trader flotilla, and I won't give anything, but they had to come to the planet where uh, Shira Calpurnia is the head Arbides officer on the planet. And it's her interactions with this rogue trader's flotilla 
it's it's a great great novel. It ends very poorly for everyone involved, which is awesome. Um, and it kicks off the third book in the series, which is really good, called Blind. It's all about astropaths, and it's the second and third books segue perfectly one to the other. And I highly recommend them. It's a really interesting way to get really deep in the world of rogue traders in the second book, and then in the third book to get really deep into astropaths and how, you know that. It's basically like a little colony of astropaths and how, you know, the dramas that can unfold with all these basically crazy psychers running around. There's a great scene in Blind. I I love this, and I'm not giving anything away by sharing it. Every astropath in this colony, um, I think they called it an aviary, as if they were birds, I think, in the novel, if I remember correctly. That's been a couple of weeks. Um, But every one of them is followed around by someone with still pointed to the back of their head at all times. (laughs) And if there's any sign of the warp taint on these folks... The trigger gets pulled, and that's the end of it. So they're basically <laughs> – inc- it adds this incredible tension throughout the model because in every scene, regardless of what's going on, regardless of Hawking, there's always somebody with a gun pointed at their head for the whole novel. <laughs> I thought it was it, – it's a really interesting – really interesting. That must be a hard way to work. It's a real hard way to focus, I'm sure. Yes, it's, it's pretty cool. And you know, the astropaths have no um, – uh, no, they're all blind, as we would know the word blind to mean. So the the fact that there are humans in their space trying to navigate this world designed for the blind, and all the blind people have guns pointed to the back of their heads, it was really it, it a lot of it paints a lot of interesting truths in there. I thought it was really cool. The reading about the rogue trader in the second book in that series really had me taking a long hard look at buying the rogue trader expansion for Kill Team. Interested in that for a number of reasons. Um, I'd love to read the booklet about the rogue trader that's featured in the game. And I'd really love to see the miniature codices that come with for the um, the two forces inside the, the uh, Rogue Trader box. The uh, Gellerpox Infected and the um, there's the Star Striders and the Gellerpox Infected. I really want to read those two miniature codexes. I also like the fact that it's a way to play Kill Team. It's smaller. It looks more board gamey, which is kind of nice. It, it looks to be the kind of thing I could just sit down with my brother and play a game. He's not a 40k player at all, but he does like board games. It looks like that's it's an easier pill to swallow, so to speak, as opposed to putting a big pile of terrain in between the two of us and him kind of getting it on the first go-round, you know, because it's very flat, kind of a layout. So I, I still may get that, because I'm kind of on a rogue trader kick right now because of the book that I read. Continuing on, I did a bunch of reading last month. I read The Last Ditch by Sandy Mitchell. It's a Ciaphas Kane novel. He's this commissar. It's funny, because this one is written in the first person. Um, he does not they're comedy, and they're hysterical, and he's followed around by assistant Jürgen, who is always relt on his back, and it's really funny. This one's about, they have they get sent to a, a planet to check out an orc infestation, and all hell breaks loose, and he you know, gets a lot more than he bargained for when he lands on the planet. Um, again, really cool, because there's no space marines. This is just him and some Imperial Guardsmen uh, you know, running around uh, this ice world, basically, this frozen frost death world. Uh, and there are the Valhallans, those, uh, the great Imperial Guard forces that are uh, really, really well suited to fight in uh, freezing cold environments. Um, so that was a really cool novel, quick read and extremely funny. There are some asides in that book. Um, it's presented to the reader as if it was uh, notated by... Uh, an inquisitor. So some of the inquisitor's comments on what Ciaphas Kane is saying in the book are really funny, and I, I did find myself laughing out loud while I was reading it, which is pretty great. Also, for the longest time, I, I was misspelling his name. I always thought his name was Caiaphas, but it's C-I-A-P-H-A-S. So I think it's Ciaphas. I'm going with Ciaphas from now on until I'm told otherwise.
So the second edition of PAX Unplugged was here in Philadelphia this weekend, which is the last weekend of November into the first weekend of December. We're recording this on December 2nd, 2018. I took a pass on PAX. I did not attend. I was in the woods. But you gentlemen went. What was your experience like at PAX Unplugged? And did you go to the first one? How does it compare to the last edition? Let me jump in here first. I did go to the first one. So this is the second one. And, you know, a couple of things stood out in just terms of the organization. I got there Saturday morning, um, and the line around the block was huge because of security. Uh, that kind of took me by surprise. Uh, last year, there was security. I'm trying to remember. I did get there, I think, a bit earlier last year because we had to get in line for the uh, the RPG systems. But I think they were letting people they were letting people in the doors before block this year, where last, or last year, where this year there was like a hard... Uh, kind of um door opening at 10 for to get let the vendors get ready and stuff like that did you feel like there was too much security was it too much of a pat down or was it the usual they kind of wand you and take a glance in your bag kind of a thing it was the usual it just took me by surprise they they were moving pretty quick to give them uh yeah they were were. it was the fastest security i've ever seen good did you guys get your badges in advance in the mail i got my my badges in advance i I did not i picked mine up at the counter and it 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 was really quick there was okay, no was line. Yeah, go ahead. Let me ask this question. Did they have more space than they did last year? I believe so, yeah. Or they just used the space. Um, I think last year they may have had the same space, but not used it as efficiently. Okay. You know what I mean? Because this year they had something called the Q room, which I don't believe they had last year, unless you uh, correct me. But uh this year, like before letting people into the main hallway, they had everybody lined up in the in the queue room in the back of the convention center. So they had like uh, basically big lines and let like people that got there first got to enter the, the vendor hall first, you know, so they okay. let everybody in a big line in the morning. Um, and that was like the video that I showed on our Instagram was kind of like a quick shot of that queue room. So if anybody wants to see it, they had. Pretty much otherwise the same layout. Uh, their miniatures gaming was in a hall downstairs, which was different from last year because I remember the Warhammer tournament was upstairs in the same vendor hall last year. So they definitely moved. I don't know if they had, Lavelle, if you remember that hall F, which we saw you in last year. Yeah. I, I don't, don't think believe they, had, they that. had that last year. Yeah. So one one of the things about space, and it'll be interesting when the new the final numbers come out, because it it seemed to me that they had more space. There, it looked a little like they had fewer people, but I I don't know if that's true. I I I would find that hard to believe. I also noted that some vendors, some big vendors that was there last year, were were not here this year. Most notably for me was Privateer Press. Um, they. They did not show up this year, which was strange to me. When I was at last year's, I spoke to Will Hungerford himself, and he talked about how impressed they were, and they didn't expect anywhere near as many people as came last year. The vendor hall last year was completely full with vendors, I thought. And then this year, like half of it was tables for people to sit down. You know what I mean? And and, and a lot of the people, yeah, a lot of people in that vendor hall this year and there's nothing wrong with this, were independent publishers as opposed to the, the larger publishers having larger space. It just kind of took me by surprise. But there were still, don't let us get you wrong, there were still quite a 
quite a few vendors there. You know, you, it was yep. you couldn't visit all of them in one day. I don't think. What was the biggest draw for people to go? Were people there to shop? Were people there to do RPGs? Were people there to see board games? What was kind of the, the tone of the of the crowd? I got the feeling that people were co- gamers were collecting, and I don't know if we have anything big on the East Coast. And I think a lot of people came to just see what was out there and to play. There was a lot more, as opposed to other gaming conventions that I've been to, there was a lot more free play with people coming, meeting, and just gaming, which was really good. Well, I think it kind of faci- they facilita- facilitated the free play quite a bit, though, because you're allowed to, in that F hall downstairs, you could rent out games for free. They just, like, scanned it with your badge tag or something, I guess, to keep track of it. So you don't like run off with the board game. And then upstairs, they had all sorts of tables reserved for all these companies to do like pain and takes and you know demos. You know, each every vendor had their own like like game demo set up in front of the booth, but they also had some of them had like larger areas to demo in with like like a you know like a sixty inch uh, round table. You know, they had like ten of those tables to kind of demo the game with. So it was pretty interesting. And then they had uh, tournaments for everything there. So they had X Wing tournaments. Uh, I guess uh, uh, Warhammer tournaments, all that kind of stuff downstairs. But then they also had like the Magic Gathering uh, tournaments, and not just for seasoned players. They had a couple beginner tournaments as well. Uh, the thing I really liked that Wizards did is they were giving away uh, sixty-card decks, two-color sixty-card decks to learn for uh, new players. So they had like right when you went into the entrance, they had a uh, learn to play Magic, and I had. Monica, Ariana, and her friend with her, uh, with us. So they learned how to play Magic yesterday, and they all ended up buying like a bunch of Magic cards and making decks at home, which was pretty funny. So, Hold on, <laughs> are, are, am yeah. I not understand that you just informed me that Monica has never played Magic before? No, she has, uh-huh. but um, not like not in a way where she really understands the game that well. You know what I mean? Like she's played like a couple games here and there, and she played. You know, she played like. We built a commander deck for her like a while, but you know, she's played maybe like three games with it total, and she never really played the game in um, in an excess like an <laughs> <laughs> excess. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to say anymore. We know what you mean. Yeah. While I was there, I had two things. You know, whenever I go to a convention, I like to learn something new. Um, the people there for this rally, the people who make Ethereum. They have a card game called um, uh, Frontline No Commanders or something like that. Uh, fr- Frontline No Comrades, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. I own that game because I bought it because it was cheap. And I, I played it with my brother and my son yesterday, and I really, really like that game. It's a lot a lot of laughing going on that game. Were they there yesterday? They were there. Oh, wait. I didn't yeah. see them. They were there, and I made at the Nova the decision to wait until they were here to buy some of their Ethereum booster packs, and they didn't have them here. I felt slighted, and personally, I felt like they did that to me. The other thing is, I learned a new board game based on a movie that I love, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I played the board game. It's got a lot of miniatures in there. It, I really did like the game. Um, and one of the things I learned about the game, it, it's a little expensive, but it does come with a lot of miniatures. But it has a, it, you can play it solo or cooperatively. And it, it's pretty good. That was a good game. And the other thing that surprised me that I like... Um, um, cool minis or not, it's new. Uh, it's kind of a game. It's an entry-level mentor game. Song of Fire and Ice. 
Yeah, that that miniature game is a really really good game. I, we played a three turn demo. We actually played to its to its end because there wasn't a lot of people waiting, and it was really really good. And I felt like it's a great onboarding miniature game, like an entry level miniature game. But even though it's entry level, it it still had enough me to make decisions, and, and I like I like the game. Yeah, it's a Game of Thrones uh, game right. basically, like for people that don't know it. It's on fire and ISIS. And the one thing I put that was really really critical, and I'm gonna just tell you this, I'm. I bought that other Custodes Contempt of Dreadnought that I had been looking for. The one with the sword and the shield. Oh, wait. Was, was, uh, was Forge World there yesterday? At, at their booth, at the Games Workshop 40K booth. Because the Games Workshop two sides. One for their, I'm going to call it micro games, like Hill Teams and Black Forest. And the other side for traditional Games Workshop stuff. They also had... um. Um, Forge World stuff. They had the catalog there, and I told them what I want. I didn't think they was gonna have it. Said wait right there, and I looked at. It, I said, Oh man, I can't. I, I can't get this. There are no forty cables for this mop. He said, You go. You should go ahead and get it. You'll be satisfied. <laughs> You'll be satisfied by Christmas. Oh. Yes, and I said, Thank you very much. A kill. A kill. My son said to me, he said, It seems like you only buy models. They are going to act people. <laughs> and I said, what can I say? I had a troubled childhood. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's not about the points level. It's about the um, aggravation level. <laughs> What's going to make them say, what? Are you sure? Let me see that rule. <laughs> so it's like a contempt to Dreadnought. I'm pretty sure it's going to have a 3 plus involved. So that, that was good. That's what you need nowadays. You That's need that exactly. I need him to pr- protect my um, Telemon Dreadnought. Well, what happens is people have been swarming my Telemon. You think? <laughs> <laughs> right, encircling him. And, and, you know, you can't bring him down, and he's going to kill four models per turn. But, you know, still, that's not what I need him there for. Let's uh, get our minds around some of the new stuff from GW. Let's start off with that Necron Seraptech Heavy Construct. This thing is like, it's like an amazing spider of doom. I know, Lavelle, you must be looking at this and thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. What do you think? I tried to buy it yesterday. They didn't have it. Because <laughs> uh. <laughs> I hate shipping. I want my stuff right now. So it's interesting. In the Necron narrative, there are massive machines, war engines that they have not brought to bear. And they use these war engines in the final... Um, part of the war in heaven and many of these things are dormant and some of the cryptech covens they have this technology in fact it was one particular uh race um not race dynasty in the in the necron um in the necron world that did nothing but create these massive engines of destruction and sold them to every every other Necron dynasty during their internal wars. The first thing they did when they unified, it was they destroyed that dynasty. And then they disseminated all of their cryptex and all their technology throughout the other dynasties. So this is just an example of them bringing something out. Here is a couple of things about it. It has, um, it is, it is, it is, if you will, it is a imperial knight for the Necrons. It is an Imperial Knight. That's the best way to describe it. The only thing is they do this a lot with Necron pieces is they don't put it on a base, which makes it a little bit confusing to play with. And it can further make it confusing if you decide to model it in a dynamic pose. Um, I've been I've been looking at it. I've been watching a lot of people build it. Um, If it explodes, it will wreck a lot of stuff. Let me say that. 
Um, and it has a couple of options with weapons. One, um, it has the singularity generator and what they call synaptic obliterators and two trans-dimensional projectors. And all of these things are really, really powerful. The generator is a 36-inch heavy D3, strength 8, minus 3 AP, D6 damage. Um, and for every time you roll a wound of 6, the target offers a mortal wound in addition. The <laughs> synaptic obliterator is 72 inches of D3, strength 16, minus 4 AP, straight flat 6 damage, which I really like. And the transdimensional projector is just 24 inches, heavy D6, strength 6, minus 3, D3 damage. And again, it has if you roll a 6 to wound, you have a mortal wound in addition. It does have, like for um, melee weapons, it has, you can choose one or two, an impaling strike, which is two times the strength, which would make it strength 16, um, minus four, eight, six damage. And it has six attacks, which is pretty decent. So that would be six attacks, strength 16, minus four AP, six damage each. Do the math. And a reaping sweep, which is equivalent to a stomp, and uh, you know it's it's essentially a stomp. But and you know when you, when the knight stomps, it does twelve attacks. This one is going to do um, um, eighteen attacks because it has strength attacks. The model itself has strength eight, toughness eight, twenty eight wounds, and a normal three plus save. It starts, um, oh, it has uh, 15 to 28, it has a 16 inch move and it starts with a weapon skill of three and a ballistic skill of four and it kind of goes down from there. It is 625 points. Does have living metal in the five save. I, I thought, and um, it didn't come through, I thought it, it in, the, in some things that I had originally seen that it gave some sort of bonus to canop, uh, canoptic models, and but I'm not seeing that. And it may be, um, it may be something that they add later. So it is possible to build an, an all construct model. I mean, all construct army. So you don't have any of the dynasty. You could build. You could actually build a really, really good canoptic wraiths and scarabs and, and this model and the spider and come up with a pretty decent and pretty effective army. It is, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, just cost, it is a really expensive model. 310 bucks and um, 625 points on the table. Do that math, you're like, yeah, how, how often am I going to really get to play with this? But it's a beautiful model. That's a good-looking piece of resin. Those singularity generators are really, really cool-looking. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you guys, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I will be getting that. Another thing that came out this last month that I'm really stoked about is Blackstone Fortress. I remember seeing the uh, the, tr the preview video for this at uh, Nova this year, and I was definitely excited. Um, it was released. I picked it up. There's so There are so many great models in this box. I haven't had a chance to build any of it yet, nor play with it, but I read all the stuff. The, the the models are really really sick. There are uh, really good data sheets for use in 40k. Um, there's not like a new army you can put together with characters from Blackstone Fortress, but you can add them to existing armies, especially a guard army, and they do some kind of some fun things. But I can see the uh, the models themselves being used for a lot of really good conversions and uh, specialty characters in a bunch of other armies too. They're really 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 cool, and it's, it's especially cool that there is a secret envelope inside the box that you're not supposed to open until you get to the last kind of chamber to discover what is at the heart of the Blackstone Fortress. So I'm really, I'm pretty stoked to actually play the game and get my way into that special envelope because I have a feeling it moves some of the 40k narrative forward, I would imagine. So I'm excited about it, yeah. 
How long does it take to uh, get through the entire game? I think there are, is it 12 missions? Or it's either 9 or 12 missions, and each one is a couple of hours of play. And it plays oh, wow. solo. And you can play it solo, right, So which I may wind up doing, because it's hard to get a bunch of adults together to play this game on a regular basis. Yes, play any game on a regular basis. <laughs> but I like the idea that this is an easily expandable game, too. They can add new missions and add new characters, much like what they did with uh, Warhammer Quest and the old original version of Warhammer Quest, too, if I recall correctly. It was uh, very much a living game, but they added stuff, too. And I feel like GW has been really good about adding stuff you know, to build out some of their uh, their one-off products, like Kill Team, and hopefully in this case, uh, Blackstone Fortress. Tim, I see here that you noted that you almost bought Labyrinth of the Necrons. You know, Black Friday sales from uh, Barnes & Noble, which is the exclusive retailer for Labyrinth of the Necrons, it was like 29 bucks. I had it in my cart, and I was looking at it, and I said, you know, I... I don't need another game. I don't need another game. I certainly don't need these. The models are really cool. I don't really need them, so I wound up not buying it. But I do like the idea that this is an easier to pick up, uh, simplified Space Hulk kind of feeling uh, board game. Uh, you know, tile-based board game. I, I love the idea of it. I just couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't justify it. And as I said, it was a slow, a uh, little bit slow at work here. Well, Tim, I have Labyrinth of the Necrons. What do you think of it? Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll make some time to come by because and I can play that and kill team with you. I like it. It does play solo. You know, that's one of the things that I look for now in, in a lot of my games. But I also played it with my brother Lorenzo, who's a, not a 40K fan. And the mechanics of it was really, really good. It did generate, you know, the tension that you felt before. And at first when I was playing, I was like, well, this mechanic, well, this doesn't make any sense. But then I was like, oh, yeah, it does. We're not getting out of here. And I, it, so it did, it did, it worked very, very well. I liked it. I thought it was, um, I did buy it in Delaware, um, and where it was, I think, $30 in Delaware with no tax at a Barnes and Nobles. I, it, it had great quality. I liked the, 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 um, the Space Marines miniatures, and I liked the abilities and the way that you, each time you take a Space Marine, you're going to draw two cards, and then you can equip them on your Space Marine crew. There are five Space Marines, and you're going to pick four for your crew, and how you pick them and how you activate them really, really matters. And I thought it, it's not overly complex, but there's enough there to engage you. And so it's, a, it's an enjoyable game. It's, it's not boring. It's, it's a fun game. I would definitely use that word fun to describe it. How do you think the uh, presence of games like that at Barnes & Nobles affects new players getting to the hobby? You know, I don't, I don't think – I think the people who generally would go – listen, if people see 40K, it's not going to necessarily make them and go towards 40K if they don't know it already. And, you know, Barnes & Noble has a pretty respectable size of board games. Um, so it's really hard to say because when I was there, I also bought the Fallout board game. It was on, it was on sale. Um, you know what? I also noticed the Barnes they have a, um, a Blood Bowl uh, variant there, which is probably a similar packaging to Labyrinth of the Necrons, where it's maybe a little bit easier to pick up. So that's kind of cool, too. Let me also tell you this, though. Um, if you are near Barnes & Nobles, one of the things that kind of took me by surprise, the woman who um, who checked me out, she let me know that they have a, uh, a they have regular meetups there. And she said, yeah, they play board games here on this night, et cetera, et cetera, and card games on this night. So... There's a lot more opportunity, and I'm always talking about this. There's a lot more opportunity to pay, play games of different lengths and different levels of engagement. One more new addition to the uh, Games Workshop offerings to the hobby is this novel by Aaron Dembski-Bowden, Spear of the Emperor. This one, inter- in, this one introduces a new Space Marine chapter, a new playable Space Marine chapter to the game. 
This introduces the Emperor's Spears chapter. So in this $140 set, you get the limited edition hardback novel, you get a short story book, you get three art prints, you get an objective marker, a pin, a purity seal, but most importantly, I think, you get a chapter tactic card and some decals, some water slide decals, should you want to build a Emperor's Spears chapter. It looks like they are bright blue based on the the book and some of the art prints that are included with it that you can see on the Black Library website. Um, it comes with this really cool pin. It looks like their home world, or I don't know if it's a world or not, but it's Nemeton, N-E-M-E-T-O-N. And their heraldry is this awesome, like, three-pointed uh, trident spear shape with a skull in the middle of it. The, uh, the transfer decals look really good. They are uh, this very aquatic-looking trident. Wait, who's their progenitor chapter? It doesn't say in the description here, which is interesting. It doesn't say where they're from. No. It mentions the Star Scorpions being undone by flaws in their genetic coding. It mentions the Celestial Lions being ravaged by the Inquisitions for si- by the Inquisition for sins they did not commit. Now, after hundreds of years, only the Emperor's spears still keep their vigil. They are by bar- they are barbarian watchmen against the outer dark, bloodied but unbroken in their long duty. That sounds awesome. I'm gonna actually get this. This is cool. So I'm wondering if they have ever done this before, where they've used a novel and some bits included in the novel to launch a new chapter or a new faction. I think it's a great idea to add just one additional kind of flavor to Space Marines by just doing a book about them. Let me ask a question. Of the chapters that you can play, which ones are not original chapters? You know, straight up to the... Um, are there any? Is this the first... With their own chapter tactics. Um, are all the chapters that you see in the Codex, are, are any of them successor chapters, or are they... I mean, the, the Space Marine Codex mentions the successor chapters. You can, you can use the heraldry, and you can, but I think you're just supposed to use the, the founding chapters, uh, you know, chapter tactics, of course, and all that stuff. Um, but I don't know that there are any real successor chapters. Crimson Fists. It's worth noting, because that, that could be a way that they expand the game. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the Crimson Fists were successors of Imperial Fists, yeah. And they have their own thing going on. Okay. It'll be interesting to see what they do there. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious, too. I want to read this. I do. I like his writing. Aaron Dembski-Bowden is a good... He's a good writer. Um, I think it's great that they would introduce new stuff in this fashion. Um, Lavelle, you also brought up another book that uh, they have been teasing about releasing... The Vigilist book. Actually, I saw something just this morning, and today is, is December the 3rd. And in that book, I mean, um, from um, th- this weekend, they did announce it. And it introduces a couple of things. But most importantly, it appears to expand the Primaris. So it's got a lot of different things for um, for uh, campaign play and a couple of other things going on for there. What's interesting, that one of the things that I wanted to talk about was... It appears to be a shift towards Primaris and the Space Marines. So right now we have Primaris and we have original Space Marines. But Kalgar, one of the main characters, he appears to be a Primaris now. We won't know for sure until we get the book. So we know a couple of things. It's it's called the Nihilus campaign book, Vigilus Defiant. Um, And so 
It's got a whole thing. But one of the things that it's supposed to be bringing back, it's got, for example, uh, Imperial Fist uh, formations. They're supposed to be bringing out, and this is all rumored, formations. They're bringing formations back to 40K. I, I like that idea. I mean, some people never like formations because it made you take units that you would not normally take. But that was one of the things that I like about it. It includes some new stratagems. Um, and one of the things it says here, you know, Kalgar is definitely in it. Um, and he looks to me to be a primaris. I could be wrong. I, I don't know how in terms of the, 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 the lore you make a you turn a space marine into a primaris. The Black Legion will be in there, which is interesting. And it'll I, I believe they're going to add a couple of the other factions as well into the whole book. I like campaign books. I like uh, the 40K campaign, campaign books. And I like what they do to the game to add a different, a specific uh, war zone to play at and different missions. Let's transition right into the next part of our conversation, which is about campaign play. And I bring this up because I didn't know this until recently, and we'll talk a little bit about this in the next section. Um future history, but the there's sort of an interesting campaign element at work since the fall of Cadia books came out, centered around what we now know to be Blackstone. Okay, we'll talk about Blackstone in the next section, but so starting with um, Forgebane, you know, that box set between Admech and Necrons, which I only just this past week found out there was a campaign book inside the Forgebane box. I ordered the book. Unfortunately, I received the German language version by accident, so I have to wait for the English language version to arrive. <laughs> but it sets up an entire story of the Necrons fighting the Admech for Blackstone. And then, you know, going even b- further back in, in, you know, 40K history, uh, Games Workshop history, there was the Fall of Cadia series, of course. There was the Damocles books. There was all, you know, all the stuff in 7th edition. There was a lot of campaign books for 7th edition. Um, and then even on the Forge World side, all those Imperial, Imperial armor books. Um, I love reading all that stuff. I have to admit, I've never fully uh, played through one entire campaign. Um, I would like to. Um, Lavelle, I know that's something that you do quite a bit of. Can you talk a little bit about why and how and what makes that such a different kind of way to approach the game? Because it is kind of so rigidly defined, the games that you're going to play. Before I do that, I want to read exactly what is on the Warhammer community. Okay, uh, regarding Vigilus. A hero reborn, commanding the forces of the Imperium on Vigilus, is Marnius Calgar, legendary chapter master of the Ultramarines. As perhaps the most famous space marine of the 41st millennium, it was only fitting that Marnius Calgar would be the first to undergo the agonizing, risky process of becoming a Primaris space marines. After all, he's been part of Warhammer 40k since Rogue Trader. Or they made this model to throw everybody off, and he actually just dies in the process. And they go, oh, just kidding. And they're like, we're not going to make any more Primaris models. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Tim, to answer your question regarding campaign play, let me tell you the difference in normal play and campaign play, and this is absolutely my opinion. In the campaigns that I've played, if you have a character and the character dies, you can't play them anymore. Um, in addition, the ones that I've played, we've also agreed on a specific number of points in each one. So it might be 2,000, 2,500, 
3,000 and finally 5,000 point battle. That's what uh, Mike and I did leading up to the um, big APOC game that we ran. The thing about it is it makes you look and play a little differently. So you're not going to rush your named character out there to have him sliced and diced too early because it can't come back. Um, so it, it makes you play in a, in a different kind of way because it makes you play as if your army is not or the key pieces of your army are not expendable. And you got to make key tactical choices. When we run, if you will, narrative events at, um, at Red Caps, when Joe runs his narrative events, each one links together and they give you advantages as you move forward. I think that 40K, what makes 40K different is that it allows you to play in an organized way on a larger scale. And when you do that in a way that makes sense, it's very, very enjoyable. It, you you get to feel your chapter that or your 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 faction that you choose, and you get to feel it all the way through. I've um, been planning some campaigns where we agreed, I agreed in advance that this is the army, and it consists of elements from these chapters, and then we're going to engage in that. And if these elements go away, they go away. It allows you to keep the narrative and engage and play, if you will, when you're not at the table. It makes you be as you go through um, uh, army construction on your own. You're thinking about, well, I, I, you know, I only have five flyers, and I don't want to commit all of my flyers to this scenario because I'm going to need them over here. And if they get shot down, they get shot down. So it's it's really good in that regard, if you will, if you build making this up. If you say you're going to have five games and across those five games, you're going to go from 2000 to 3000, whatever your escalation is. And you can bring, I'm making this up 15,000 points across those games. And so what happens is you build a 15,000 point list that is, you know, it could be multiple detachments, but you build the 15,000 point list and then you engage elements of those lists. And so you're really like a commander saying, send this, this, and this there to do that. And that, that original 15,000 point pool of units and models can't be changed, of course, throughout the campaign because it forces, it makes you treat it like this is all you have at your disposal, which is kind of nice. That's correct. Yeah, that's cool. When Mike and I played, Mike, um, one of the scenarios that we knew was going to be, Mike was going to attach, attack a moon that was supposed to be my launching play, place for my flyers. And as a result of that, based on how many objective points he got in that game, it would limit my access to flyers moving forward. Sweet. That's a great idea. Huh. Right. And, you know, you and one player, you and multiple players can sit down and design this, and it doesn't take a lot. And actually, Games Workshop has put out a lot of things around designing campaigns and their previous uh Editions and it really works. When you think about a campaign, it changes your your gameplay, and you know it makes the objectives and everything that you do make a lot more sense. What Mike and I did when we played our our I think it was a Necron versus Space Wolf campaign, and it was like similar to what Joe had put out there. Our campaign was settlers were trying to settle a planet. They didn't know it was a Necron planet. And the Space Wolves was trying to escort the and, and make sure the establishment, the, um, the, the, uh, the world got colonized. And all the while we're fighting. And so the Space Wolves not, not just kill us, but they have to protect the settlers. It was a really, really good campaign. Mike put a lot of work into thinking about the objectives and what would make sense. And one game we play test and we felt like it didn't work. It was too, 
Um, and I didn't say we play tested. We played it. It was too one sided, and we actually redid that scenario, made some adjustments, and then replayed it as part of the campaign. Um, I, I really like um, Lavelle's idea just now. Like, I haven't seen a campaign like that, like with that limiting access to certain units, depending on how the campaign goes. Um, sounds really cool. Um, but uh, in my experience, uh, it's hit or miss, really. Um, I usually get really excited about them. And then fairly sick of them <laughs> if they go on for too long. So I think um, I think campaigns with 40k generally, I'd like them to be a little bit short, like a month max, maybe a month or two to the max. And I think you need to give people some time to play the games. I think uh, in my experience, like the thing that's been hard for me was. Uh, it's always like you play like four games every week and it tended to be a bit much for me. Even though the games are only like 45 minutes, it's still like, unless you play a game where like everybody meets on the same night or you play a couple games with the same person, it's kind of hard to organize four different games with four different people, you know? The campaign I played, you know, what, I like what Carlo just said because it's very, very important. The problem or what made it work, it was just me and one other person. And so it's less coordination across multiple players. And I am in an escalation league with a great group of gamers near me, the Basement War Gamers. And I've been in this escalation league for a number of months. It meets, you know, they got a whole challenge mechanism. It's really, really good. I am doing terrible, terrible, terrible in this league. <laughs> I think I may be one above the guy in the bottom. And him and I keep trading. What happens is, um, it, I think it started at a thousand points, and I think we might be at twenty five hundred, and you know, so it keep on going. But the problem is, if you change factions, you go to the bottom of the list, and so you know, maybe I have a little problem. With that. <laughs> <laughs> now might be a good time to specifically talk about chapter approved because I've been following chapter approved really, really closely, and the main reason is I really like what it did to the game last year. It fixed things. It made some corrections, and I, I'm interested in one of the things it's going to do is it's going to bring back the Adeptus Sororitas. It's supposed to be packed with great content. They, they haven't given a lot away other than saying that the Sisters of Battle will be there. The, in the deluxe pack, there's supposed to be some things, including the cards for the Sisters, um, for the Adeptus Sororitas, which is really, really good. It's really, really good. So I, I think um, the... In my opinion, the FAQ makes minor tweaks, but chapter approved makes some 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 sweeping changes to the game. I'm really curious as to what they'll do. So it, I know I'm jumping around. Going back to Vigilus, Vigilus is supposed to be two books. The way the Fall of Cadia was three books, wasn't That's it? That's correct. And um, in that in those three books, if you if you if you can get your hands on the Fall of Cadia. Even though it was the previous edition, you should get it. That has some of the best writing. It's just incredible. It's incredible. I have it, and you know, reading it is gripping as you're watching the retreat and the whole thing. And I like the, the I watched a video on it too, and it says one of the things they say as the planet began to crack from space, you could still see the red stream of last fire. And that they're saying now is the planet cracked before the guard did. 
the planet broke before the guard did. And it's it's pretty good. It, it was some of the greatest reading. And so some of these campaign books, you know, they, they, they just add a new element. The previous campaign book, it was read, the name of it escapes me, actually added a new uh, character for the Necron. I think it was Blood Angels and Necrons side by side against somebody. It was pretty good. Yeah, the the campaign books are cool because they are the ones that can significantly move forward the overarching 40K narrative. Like, they really move the story forward. Um, I was talking to somebody over the weekend about the Black Library novels, and he was saying how, you know, some of them are, just feel like, you know, they're just kind of random stories, which is, which is true. Um, but there are other, you know, real canon, real... Uh, narrative moments in the Black Library books that really do move the overall arcing story forward. But when you pick up a campaign book, you know you're going to get those those big move forward, big moves forward with the whole narrative, which makes it kind of cool and makes it kind of exciting. Much like with um, we had talked about in the, pre- in the previous segment, the Blackstone Fortress uh, game, the the boxed game. Uh, I have a feeling there's something in there that moves the narrative forward too. Um, so I wouldn't doesn't surprise me that with the new campaign book, the Vigilist book coming out, that'll move us forward a little bit. Uh, maybe this new chapter that's introduced in this new novel that we had just talked about, the Spears of the Emperor, uh, maybe that moves us forward a little bit in some fashion. Um, there is a mention in the description of that novel about them being the, one of the first Primaris chapters. So I'm curious to see how that shakes out. Curious to see how that shakes out relative to what we had talked about Um with all the space marines becoming primaris marines in the you know the current the current the coming story arcs i love the um the production value that goes into the campaign books is usually really good uh the imperial armor books are awesome there's so much art and so much detail in them that just adds to the uh, the reading experience certainly and uh i'd like to take advantage of the playing experience but uh you know like carlos said it does take an investment in time and energy to actually play through an entire campaign but if you can take it off in small bites, and if, as Lavelle said, if you can just play it against one other player as opposed to turning it into a bigger, harder-to-organize, more onerous affair, uh, that could be uh, pretty sweet. Uh, but let's find out. Lavelle and I will engage in the uh, Forgebane campaign booklet. I'm looking at the German-language book now, but uh, I'll get the English-language version next week. Uh, I can translate it. It says Necrons win. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it says. (laughs) But we can go through it anyway. Yeah, let's play it. Let's see what happens. Yeah, we'll play through it anyway. No problem. No problem at all. Cool. We'll take a short break and be right back with the next section. The big 40K event for us in November was Killicans which we've talked about on the show before, but we will remind our audience what Killicans is all about. It is a terrific tournament uh, put on at Red Caps Corner uh, by Joe and Colin and the company. It's a cool format. It's a three-round tournament. It's teams, 1,000 points each, two-person teams. And upon entry to Red Caps Corner on the day of the tournament, for every canned good you bring with the purpose and intention of donating to Phil Abundance, which is a uh, a food-based charity here in the Philadelphia area. For each can you bring in, you get a ticket, and each ticket is worth a re-roll during the course of a game. And additional tickets may be purchased for a dollar apiece. On each of the tables, there's like a can, a little empty uh, soup can, and you just pop your ticket in there or pop your dollar in there, and uh, you wind up with a re-roll. Which makes for extremely fun, extremely frustrating, and extremely expensive games. Yes. Remember, there were multiple ways this year we could use the tickets. You could turn wounds into mortal wounds. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, fill me in on what they were, Lavelle. Sorry, I'd forgotten I that. I can't remember them all. All I know is they were very frustrating. And Volsave. Right. There's, um, more, but it was, it was cumulatively expensive. So, like, per game, every time you did it, it increased by three tickets starting at three. So let me narrate the beginning of this for, for, for our listeners. So at the beginning of every tournament, you get a chance to challenge somebody. And because after that, it's based on how you do in the tournament where you rank and, and, and go. So Justin and Nikhil, my son, my two sons, they, 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 they haven't played a lot. So I figured me and Tim will challenge them. Here was my thinking. We're going to get an easy win, and they'll get a chance to get their feet in. So it's kind of give and get. Well, it turns out, turn one, four different people from across the tournament challenge me. And I'm looking like, what did I do? It's hard to see whether they think, well, what a challenging game that will be, or let me get the easy win. So Tim and I square up with uh, Justin and Nikhil, and they're Space Wolf and Eldar versus our custodies and, um, and Admech. And, you know, we're, we're thinking, okay, you know, we'll show them the ropes. By the first five dice rolls, Tim and I are turning around from the table. Okay, look, we got a problem here. <laughs> we got a problem here. We've got to eke out something. Akil said, I'm going to have Kayla Mincha Kane in your back line by the time I turn one. I said, well, bring it. And he was there, and I was fighting for my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was fighting for my life. The only thing I think that saved us was some involved saves. Yep, but it, it was a fun game. I don't, I don't remember how many um, re-rolls we spent that game, but I didn't get the sense that that one was super expensive. We were trying to pace ourselves. That was your mistake. Yeah, we should have just gone full ham and let the uh, let the dollars fly. Yeah, We ended up with a minor <laughs> victory. So the major mistake made that day was that Lavelle f- forgot to bring his wallet, which opened up the, the tournament to the rest that, of us. This is correct. <laughs> For some reason, I forgot my wallet, and so I couldn't buy my way to victory, or at least an even game. So game two for us, we squared up against um, Orcs and Tau, which was Ames and Blake. This was interesting because the Orc book had just come out. I think it was that day, actually, right? Or wait, was that a Saturday or Sunday? It was a Saturday. So it was that day, yeah. They they were energetic uh, players. I wasn't crazy about facing off against that mix of Orc and Tau, and I'll tell you why. The Orcs, the way the Orcs were played in that game was basically just to form quicksand, just so that very little could actually happen. And it just, it became slogging through the game a bit, because with that many Orcs, you know, uh, what's the teleporting thing that they do called? um, The jump. The jump. Between the jump, putting that many boys like right in front of you, and then that many boys right around you, so you can't move, you can't fall back to shoot again, you can't do much of anything, is it's quicksandy. In my mind, a list that's predicated around not being able to do anything over the course of a game isn't like a super fun list. Let me say, there was the other, that stratagem that allowed him to bring a unit back. Let me, let me make this observation. I now see why they generally have a rule that says, or they used to, I don't know if they have it in tournaments, You, the codex has to be out a certain amount of time before you can bring it to a tournament. I, I never really got that before then because I was totally unprepared for it. I was just amazed at how many boys you could fit in a 1,000-point list. It's a lot. You know, I felt like, um, I think we took a minor law, or they got a minor victory in that game, and we, we kind of held on 
but I really felt like I felt like I could have been better prepared had I have known what the new fully what the new work codex can do. I I feel like in my gameplay right now I do a better job of learning about the other armies. Yeah, I really felt like one decent night might have uh, been able to churn through that. Exactly, right. Something like that with a, with a lot of shooting from like an assault cannon or something would have been great. Yeah. Or that can fall back over them. So would you have changed your lists knowing that, though? I might have That's wanted a, a patrol with the knight. But for the entire tournament, you would have done that? Um, it wouldn't have been as much fun, but I, I would have, I would have known that because the orc list against a normal army is p- pretty powerful in its sheer number. It's not even the same horde experience that you get with Terranids. It posed a lot of questions for me and how I'm looking at the orc army that I'm putting together. I don't want to build a big, like super boy heavy orc army, which I know is not going to make it a very competitive army, but I want to focus more on the elites and the, the, the planes and have fewer models on the table to make it feel a little bit more energized. So it's not just these big blobs of boys teleporting across the table and making sure that things don't happen. But it was, So it was a good game in that sense, that I really got a, uh, a taste of what that type of orc list can do, and I figured out that type of orc list isn't for me, so that's not the direction I'm going to take this orc army that I'm putting together. So I want to make a commercial here. I'm going to take a little break off for the Killer Cans analysis and talk about, and we may be talking about this later, but let's talk about it a little bit now. Chapter approved. So, chapter approved will be dropping any week now it'll be coming soon and there you see a lot of people talking about what it is that um that they expect to change etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm i'm going to tell you i think that pollen can be a little abusive i think pollen is meant to allow you to get more models that could not originally get in on charge get into the fight that fight that was already going on but pollen right now is being used to wrap other units into the attack, which to me doesn't seem like what pollen really should be for. That is just my opinion, um, but it'll be interesting. I agree with being able to destroy your unit and then roll into another unit, but not expand the fight. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody up at GW agrees with that either in this one or the next uh, FAQ. When you charge, I believe one of the things that allows you to do it, you don't have to move. Only the first model has to move directly to the unit charged. And so by charging and then moving people forward, but not directly towards the unit being charged, that allows you to get shenanigans with pollen. And then our final game. Our final game was great. We played uh, Jay, who's a familiar face from the D.C. area, and Chris. I hope I got Chris's name right. We had to rack our memory machine because I lost my notes, but I believe it was Chris. If it's not, forgive me. They were playing Eldar and Death Guard, respectively. We had an awesome game with them. High energy, a lot of crazy stuff happening. Um, Let me tell you what I like about that Death Guard player, which is what I don't see a lot. He had a low model count, but he was very, very efficient with that model count. The, the soul burners were dealing out the mortal wounds against my custodes. Yeah, so it was a really, really good army. And w- the other thing that I liked about it was the points were swinging back and forth. It came down to the last turn where we were able to shift things in our favor. How did they go for you, Carlo? <laughs> <laughs> Just because John and I got like basically a pallet of food and brought it doesn't mean that we even won. Because I could have sworn we were going to win. 
because we brought so much food. But you never know what's going to happen in Killer Cans. Yeah. Uh, they went great. Uh, first, we played, uh, we were actually lining up to play Justin and a Kill, but then the, the uh, uh, challenge went through and they got relocated to your table. So uh, we ended up playing Greggles and uh, Todd, which are, uh, you know, two great opponents. Uh, we had a great game there. We would have gotten, so that was Orcs and Raven Guard. And we would have gotten smashed that game, but we had like an endless supply of rerolls. So we basically like cheated. I mean, the, the, the whole thing with Telecans with me is like, it's the only like tournament I have a chance of winning all year specifically because cheating is allowed. So like, <laughs> um, I kind of, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a mess because it was, uh, you know, I, I, I think like Greggles and Ty are like the two nicest guys and some of the best hobbyists like I've met. And I kind of like, you know, John and I were, you know, we were playing a little dirty. We had all the re-rolls. We had all the, you know, like we, we, we would not have made it through that game without that, the, you know, the, the ability to cheat. So I got to give a shout out to them for, for bearing with us that game. Cause you could tell like by the end of it, they're just like, how is this possible? <laughs> um, so that's, that's, that's Todd from Black Maria Designs and uh, Gregos from Feed Your Nerd. If we can give them a proper shout out, both are, uh, are internet locations worth visiting. That's Feed Your Nerd and Black Maria Designs. That's uh, Todd or Greg and Todd. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody's seen our Instagram posts from Nova, uh, Gregos plays the orcs with a big uh, Orcanod conversion of the Castellan Knight. And then Todd has all the Raven Guard. Uh, it was like a like a launch pad kind of a thing. It was a big display with LED lights and everything. So it was really cool. Second game. Oh, we stayed on the same table because I was like, like Joe was giving out prizes. I was like, Joe, I don't even need a prize. Just don't move me. I just want to stay right here. <laughs> I had like a nice chair, like you know the, the red caps has the stools that are set up, and uh, I was cozy. So you know. Joe complied. John and I got to stay where we were. We ended up playing two gentlemen, of which whom I do not remember their names because it has been so long. But they were from, uh, they're two uh, police officers in Philly. They were playing uh, Bloody. But surprisingly, we got parking tickets. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're great guys. They're super nice. Um, they, uh, it, from what it sounded like, they have other guys in the precinct that they work at that play 40K too. So it's cool. They were playing a, a Space Marine list. It was Blood Angels and Dark Angels. That was another rough game for us, but we managed to squeak through uh, cheating yet again So with the rerolls. And then uh, third game, we ended up going against that work towel list you were talking about before. How was that for you? Oh God. Oh God. I have nightmares about that game. Not, no, Ames, Ames, you know, they were both like super nice guys. I got to give them credit. Ames is like the most positive person I've ever met. He was playing the orcs. I was playing, John and I were playing space wolves and dark angels again. Cause we do that line and the wolf thing. And we played on a different board. Finally, you know, we were forced to move to the top, one of the top tables, you know, from cheating all day. It got us in uh, like a winning position, but, uh, we got decimated that game. It was rough. Uh, neither of the Riptides had taken, like, any wounds. So they were just sitting back. He started them on top of a piece of terrain because flying monsters can traverse terrain like that. But can I ask so, a question like, about that? Because I saw I yeah. saw, and I see a lot of that. Even though you are you have the fly keyword, so you can ignore terrain, you still can't, I thought, you still can't place your model where your base can't completely fit. 
Right, but the bases could fit there. It was like a big. It was kind of a poor board, like board for us to be playing that on. It was just a bad matchup for us because he was able to put both riptides on the same piece of terrain. It was like a big building with a roof on it. That uh, was probably like a, like a square foot, you know. He uh, put both of those up there, so my Thunderwolf cavalry can't get up there, and I didn't bring Wolf in that day. So I tried deep striking, and uh, I had a Melta Grey Hunter's rod, and I tried doing that, and I had some Sky Claws, and I had a Wolf Guard Battle Leader with a jump pack, so they were like the only thing we could deal with those Riptides with. And um, I don't know if you know this, but Riptides can like overcharge with the Nova Reactors and get like a three up in ball, we, even we in close combat. We definitely yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like finally got in this close combat with him with my Thunderhammer guy, and he like saved all four Thunderhammer hits with a three up and ball. So it was like at that point, we were just like, can't do anything. So, uh, and we chewed, like, I feel like boys. I feel like having the tide of traders thing for orcs is kind of a little bit too much because they're toughness or, and you could like mob them up to be, uh, or I guess you can't use it on a squad that's mob, but you can still use it on like a 30 man boy squad. So by the time you chew through like T4 boys and then they replenish the whole squad, it's kind of, I think a little bit too much for them. I think that should be reserved for, Infantry units with toughness three or less. Maybe for Grotz, it should exist. Let me ask a question. What do you guys think about this statement? In a team game, are you better off with one army, one faction, even though it's a team game together? It depends on the tournament's rules. With Killican specifically, uh, you're you're allowed to share your buffs if uh, if it's um, allowed in the rules. You know, so like if you have Space Marine buff popping off against like other uh, Space Marines of that chapter, then it is advantageous for you to share. But there are benefits of I think like Tau and Orc is like a really good combo that you can't normally use because you get the in your face of the Orcs and then the sit back and shoot the Tau. It depends upon what the tournament organizers after, I guess. Is that right? I think um, the thing about Kelcans though is that it's so fun because there's no expectation uh, like what you should be running you know it's not like a narrative tournament it's not like an extreme tactical tournament so basically like people can run i think it's fine for people to run whatever they want and that's why i never really get upset about it at killer cans because it's like you know you're gonna get smashed some somewhere along the lines by some like excessive re-rolls or like some craziness i would agree so was that was that all three of you that was all three of your games yeah yeah the second game i just don't remember very much of but uh did you guys talk about the missions at all do you remember them i'm trying to remember but i remember the second mission was the uh one where you had to hold the prisoner and escort him across the map or as like a vip or something and you had to get him within six inches of the center of the board in the game to score point after your opponents. That, I thought, was really good because it, it could only move a maximum of nine inches, so you couldn't throw it on, like, a jump pack unit. You could, but it would kind of slow them down. And you couldn't throw it on anything that was non-infantry without having to work because it would, like, smack itself and deal mortal wounds. I thought that was a really fun uh, 
a fun uh, objective um, for that game. I'm trying to remember what I think third was basically kill points. That was like the 50, 75% broken thing that um, those uh, missions usually do. I'm trying to, I think the first one might have some objective markers. So we, we wrapped up the day after three games. Um, I forget what the numbers were in terms of the cans and money donated, but I think it was over a thousand dollars of just cold hard cash spent on rerolls and uh, mortal wounds and uh, save uh, modifiers, and the pile of cans at the front of the store was was huge. I mean, it was it was a, like a table full of canned goods, which was really nice to see. I know I brought thirty cans and thought I was rolling pretty deep with cans, but others had brought like a hundred plus cans of, of food to donate. So it was it was pretty awesome and uh, a neat way to run a tournament. Yeah. episode. I'm going to take the first because I think this guy's awesome and I, I play a chapter that shares his name. The first oh, one I is... I thought you were talking about us. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is Carlo. He's <laughs> such a hero. <clears throat> I need a hero. I need a hero. <clears throat> so the first one is Colonel Ironhand Straken. He is a Katachan commanding officer. From what I've read, he seems like a real uh, like a take a beating and keep on ticking kind of guy. You can't keep him down for long. He's, he's super gung ho, almost to a fault. He shares every difficulty, wound, victory, and defeat with his fellow warriors. So he's very much like on the front lines of everything. He uh, he lost his arm to a mural, mural, m i r a l land shark. I don't know what that is. I'm picturing like a sandworm. I think it's a beer. But there you go. Yep, he lost his <laughs> he lost his arm to a beer. Yep. Now a, a land shark. Remember, they were on Saturday Night Live. That's right. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to look up what a mural or a mural land shark is, uh, listeners. If you know what a land shark is, just uh, post one up in our Instagram or the uh, or the Facebook page. And I do not mean the beer in this case. I doubt it was a, I doubt it was a beer bottle that took off his entire arm because he could probably take a, a beer bottle to the arm with no difficulty whatsoever. Hold on. I'm on the lexicanum. It's a native to the world of Meryl. It's a carnivorous jungle-dwelling creature capable of tearing human-sized prey to pieces in seconds. Uh, Colonel Strachan was famously attacked by a land shark while tracking an Eldar patrol. It tore off his right arm, resulting in a famous bionic replacement and his moniker Iron Hand. But then he claimed to have ripped the creature's throat out with its own teeth. With his own teeth. <laughs> I like I like how when, when you're talking about the cat, when you're talking about Katachan warriors, somebody is definitely biting into something else and like getting covered in the, in its blood. Yes. <laughs> they are just like not afraid to like grapple and get dirty and get nasty and kick and punch and bite and claw their way to victory, whatever fashion it is. Yeah. Um, Straken is willing to do anything for victory and expects his soldiers to do the same. Is he insane and very talented or just downright insane? 
and super lucky that so far he has only lost an arm. So there's there's lots of, he appears in several stories. He's been around for a long time in the 40K lore. Um, there's all kinds of stories across all kinds of books that involve Straken and the Catachans and him uh, getting his hands dirty and especially his iron hand dirty. Um, I like this guy because he has the iron arm. He looks awesome in all the artwork that I've seen. I like the fact that he's a commanding officer that is at the front lines with his people the entire time. And Pretty sweet. He's got like a his like whole actual like right side of his torso is um, metal, you know, and uh, he's got looks like he's got some sort of uh, skull of a, a beast on like a backpack. You think that's a land shark? That's probably the land shark. Yeah, yeah. Again, he's another like Rambo looking red bandana wearing. There's definitely a cigar somewhere in his pockets. He's got like a combat tactical shotgun and a knife, and he's ready to get blood, guts, and gore and veins in his teeth, it looks like. Yeah, he's, he's, he's into it. That shotgun is huge. That shotgun's like the size of his whole body. Like... It's pretty badass. It's, <laughs> it's a good-looking model. It's still available. It's only 15 bucks. That's cool. He survived decades of war, and he was a grizzled sergeant that he earned the bionic replacement that would become his trademark and his moniker. While stalking an Eldar patrol, Straken was savagely attacked by a land shark that tore off his arm. He would have died from his injury, but he's no more, nor, no, no normal man. He was born and bred on Katachan and is one of the toughest breed of warriors to ever serve the Imperial Guard. That's pretty cool. They kind of run for a second. Hey, like a, like isn't, a, it true, like song. isn't it true that Katachans always know their directions? They never get lost? Because I think on their on their planet the trees move. I think the trees move, and so they can't navigate that way. And, and they just have an innate ability to always know the cardinal directions. Is it that they always know the directions, or that they refuse to ask? Because there's a big difference. <laughs> is there? <laughs> is there really, Carlo? I'm. Uh, just shut up I'm and sit back. We'll get there when we get there. <laughs> it's just around the next turn. Just around the next turn. <laughs> Um, so we have one additional human hero of the Imperium to talk about today, and this is Katarina Greyfax. I know this is a model and character that is near and dear to your heart, Lavelle, so why don't you take it away and explain to us who Katarina Greyfax is and where she came from. Now, I, I think you got it confused. This, is, this segment is on the wisdom of the Necrons, namely Trezan the Infinite, because some time ago, uh, centuries ago, he captured Greyfax, and her bodyguard of Tempestus Science, which were drawn from the 55th Capic Eagles. I know the story well. And he kept them locked up in his collection. And at the key moment, because of this insight, during the fall of Cadia, he released her and her guard. And the, the way they describe it, she paused for a second, and, you know, the Abaddon and his crew were fighting, and she could tell there were some Imperium Guard people there, she could clearly see the chaos people. She didn't know what was going on. She went right to work. And she jumped right in the battle, just kind of taking up where she came from. She is an inquisitor from the Ordo Hereticus. And in the middle of the battle, she saw Celestine fighting. And she said, wow, if ever this is a, there's a heretic, this is one. <laughs> How long was she suspended for? Uh, they, they don't really know. They said centuries ago. They don't really say um, how long Trezan held her um, in the Imperial collection. He considered her and her, her retinue, her, or rather her bodyguard unit, to be very, very important. And, um, you know, she was um, 
immediately released. I think he toyed with, in the book, the way they describe it, he toyed with whether or not he was going to give this up because, you know, once he let it out, he wasn't going to get it back. So he toyed with that, but he felt like the battle was going so poorly for them that they needed something. And so he released them. And so they they don't say how long he had her, um, but it's, uh, it, you know, we can tell by her position that, you know, obviously it's after he, he snatched her after the creation of the Adeptus Sororitas. Um, so she, she didn't see, um, she didn't see Celestine as a living saint. And so she saw her as a manifestation of the warp, which is something I would like us to discuss in a different conversation. <laughs> just about the warp and the emperor and these manifestations. I'm just putting that out there. And so they, she began the fight and her main thing was Abaddon was getting ready to strike down Celestine and she stopped his blade using her psychic ability. In the game, she has the ability to take control of a character. And so that her game ability played over well to what actually what happens in the story. And she Wait, stopped him. Really? Oh, I use like, oh, the psychic oh, the psychic ability. Yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I took over a tile character and shot him up. It was great. <laughs> Very satisfying feeling because he was jumping around with all these guns. I said, "Oh yeah, got great facts in the in the area and took care of that." <laughs> um, so she is, as a character played in the game, she is really really good. Um, I'll talk about the problems with bringing her, but what I like about her, which made me actually go out and get a model. At first, I found a um, a proxy model that I liked, but then I I finally got saw the actual model and loved it and actually went out and got that because I love her hat and the. The model, she's got like a almost like a top hat, and so I in the game she plays like she operated in the story, and you don't always see that. Um, she, as any other inquisitor, you know, everybody that's not purely human is absolutely a heretic, as they are. I say to any members of the Inquisition listening, they haven't really put her into any additional stories that I know of. But she is out and about right now, and she is really, really good as a as a playing character. I would say, thanks to Trezan, we have her now where we need her the most. She uh, she does appear in an audio drama and two novels since the Fall Acadia books came out, since she was released. Um, she's worked with the White Scars, Grey Knights, and other Inquisitors. Uh, of course, she's all about taking down the forces of chaos. What what is she armed with, Lavelle? Um, before I go that there, let me say this. One of the things about her is she. Um, what is it? She, one of the things is while she was in captivity, um, Trezan put nano scarabs in her that mentally prevent her from ever attacking him. Is this true? Or are you making this up? Well, what's the difference? No, it's, <laughs> I'm just telling you, if you happen to play my Necrons with her, you can't do it. No, it's it, according to the Lord's truth. I didn't make that piece up. But, you know, that makes a lot of sense. She was, she was formidable from the very beginning. And, you know, some people, they, they Solomance is his, uh, his homeworld. They stumble on Solomance, and they don't necessarily get off. Um, but she, she was there, and she was well, we don't know really where he snatched her from, but she's a pretty good fighter. Okay, to answer your question, I need a few minutes to pull up my uh, battle scribe. Well, before I go over that, let's talk about a couple of powers. One, 
she has authority of the Inquisition, so she can get into any Imperial transport. She has Indomitable, which gives her a plus one to the Deny the Witch. She has Oculum, which allows her to target characters that have psychers or daemon, even if they're not the closest. She can reroll hit runes um, for any chaos or psyker, anything with chaos or psyker. And anything within six inches can use her uh, her uh, her leadership. She has a movement of six, weapon skill and ballistic skill of three, strength three, toughness three, five wounds, and four attacks. She has a three-plus save naturally. She has, and I love this, a Master Crafter Condemner Bolt Gun. 24-inch range, rapid fire one, strength four, minus one AP, one damage, but... Um, if it attacks the psychers, it increases the damage from one to three. She has a master crafted power sword and psychic grenades. I like that. I like psychic grenades. They're six inch D3. It's a grenade D3. Um, it has a strength two, but any roll um, of a six when the wound, you, they take the, um, a mortal wound. I don't get to use them a lot, but I, I just like the, the sound of a psychic grenade. This is it just one shot? It's a grenade D3. Uh, D3. That Condemner bolt gun is awesome because it's basically just a bolt gun with a crossbow built into the top of it, and the crossbow fires silver spears that do the additional damage to psychers, which is pretty dope. Yeah. The, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The model is beautiful. Yeah, the hat and the psyoculum mounted on the side of her head and everything look really badass. And the oversized power sword, I think, looks pretty pretty great, too. You know, the question I always ask is, um, when you if you're going to take an Inquisitor, are you going to grab um, Eisenhorn or Grayfax? And both are really, really good. I like the look of the Grayfax model. Why not both? Um, can you take both? Yeah, you take a Supreme Command Detachment. You'd have to take one more but uh, to get three in. Or you just take minus two CP, do two single auxiliary. Right, right now, the, the Inquisition doesn't have any troops. So you can't really, right. you know. Is there, guess... a third, is there a generic Inquisitor that you can run as like a third or like something? In, in, the, in the Inquisitor HQ slot, you can take just an Inquisitor. You can take Kodiaz, Eisenhorn, Greyfax, Karamazov. That's the guy in the big chair, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so you could take you could take at least three. Yeah, yeah. You, you can for Supreme you Command. can take an Ordomalius Inquisitor and Terminar, Terminator armor. Yeah, some of the models that they have with the Inquisition look really, really good. You don't see too many people taking a lot of like Inquisitors or any of those. Um, what was the the Codex from the last edition? It was Heroes of the Imperium. Uh, sorry, Heroes of the um, Imperium. Yep, right? yep, yep. That's, what, That's what it was. Yeah, I think it's, and this kind of ties back to that conversation about uh, the Rogue Trader box set and the uh, the the forthcoming 40k rules for uh, all the stuff that's in the Blackstone Fortress box. Is that I I, I like the fact that there are these cool characters uh, that you can add to any other Imperial army just to give them a little extra a little extra something on the side. I like that a lot. You know, it would be nice. You can't do it anymore. It would be nice if you could take. Um... If they fleshed out the Sisters of Silence, because um, and they came, I just feel like they would do really, really well against a Death Guard army. I'm sorry, a Thousand Sun army. 
Yeah, but I think the problem with the Inquisition is the Inquisition is not really designed in terms of the narrative or anything to field its own army. And the way the rules read right now, you can't take, if you will, another army and insert the Inquis an Inquisitor into one of those HQ slots. But the way that the, the, the narrative goes, an Inquisitor could show up and say, hey, I need you to help me with this thing, Mr. and Mrs. Space Wolf, Mr. and Mrs., and come with me. <laughs> and then so they operate in a command slot of the the whole Space Wolf army. I wish we could, I really wish you could do that with the Inquisition. So do you think it's worth losing the one CP to take one Inquisitor? No. You don't think so? Would you say one? Yeah, you, you lose, it's, it's minus one CP for an auxiliary support detachment to take a, like a single HQ or whatever to take any single you, unit. You know what? Yes. You know what? I did not think of it the way you just described it, but that's a very good point, Carlo. I thought of it as taking, I'm making this up, my Blood Angel army and taking a battalion and having an Inquisitor serve as one of the HQ slots. And then, yeah, but your way, you know, no, I don't know if I'd lose that one CP because then you could, in the battalion arrangement, which is probably the well, most you can't useful. Do that. Right, you can't. Right, yeah. I was saying in the battalion, the battalion uh, um, is you, the the build is the most useful because that's going to give you five. Right. So five would you sacrifice able. one? Like you could take a battalion of blood angels and then take like an inquisitor for minus one, so that puts you at four. Um, or I guess seven altogether. Yeah, right? seven. But. Uh, I don't know. I mean, plus more, you know, depending on where else you run. But uh, do I don't you think know. Grayfax is worth having minus one CP. The only time I feel like it's worth taking it minus one is that one model I'm dropping in is a Caluxus. I'll do it for a Caluxus, not even for a Vindicare. Does um, Eisenhorn give you the ability to target characters? I think Eisenhorn's got some other shenanigans that he does. I mean, he, he summons True Bile. And uh, he has Quarry. Which allows you to reroll hit and wound rolls for um, any auto zenish that are within that do not have chaos, imperium, or unaligned faction. He has a fix six up, feel no pain, and once per battle he can use his book Malice Codicium to do a couple of things, like particularly summon a daemon host. You know he's pretty good in combat too. He has a weapon that has minus three AP. He has four attacks and does D three damage. He just doesn't have, like, an involve save, right? So he's pretty susceptible to being... If you, like, are able to get close to him, you'll wipe him out pretty quick. Because he's five wounds, a four-up save, and no involve. Yeah, this is so. true. <clears throat> I like his electro-brain grenades, which have six-inch, and it targets a wound on a four-plus. They suffer a mortal wound. So that, I mean, it's not a lot. He'll do a mortal yeah. wound, but on a six, he'll do D3 mortal wounds to a vehicle. I don't understand why he's a three up weapon skill and ballistic skill. He should be a two. Like most characters are two up, aren't they? I agree. Most ca most named characters should be a two up. They yeah. should be, you know. But Grayfax isn't either. I, I I feel like these Inquisitors, even though they're normal people, so I get the strength three and the toughness three or four, depending on what they're wearing. But their skill should go above that. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably true. I know Eisenhorn's like 100 points, isn't he? It's like... Eisenhorn like is... A, and Grayfax is 85. 
you can get a space marine librarian for under that that does pretty much all the same stuff right i agree like, kind of like not exact obviously it doesn't have all the special abilities but i mean those only go so far in the and game it, you know so. matt this guy Kamarazov, he does have a four up in bone but he is in that huge chair and i i think it's they deserve a treatment that and Grayfax is a great example of this. A, a, a tr inquisitors deserve a treatment outside of the normal um, army bill because they don't they don't fit into normal army bills. They're supposed to just like show up, right, with uh, and like commandeer forces and stuff. Yeah, but let me ask a question. Cody is is he a he is a um, a gray knight, right, or is he? No, he's an inquisitor, but he has the uh, he's got the big eagle on his arm. Cody is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's an, he's the inquisitor with the like the, he's got the thunder hammer. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. And Karamazov is fifty six bucks. Woo! Inquisitor Kodiaz is available from Games Workshop. He's a nineteen dollar and twenty five cent model. He's got the two headed eagle on his arm. He's got a thunder hammer. He's got great looking power armor. He's driven by a single consuming passion to destroy demons wherever they manifest with an unco with uncompromising force, with spies on every corner and trusted acolytes at his beck and call. Kodiaz can outfox and outwit his opponents, leaving them ducking for cover or more likely already dead. Is that a thunder hammer? And it, 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 he has a big hammer and a two-headed eagle. Oh God, I didn't realize that eagle had two heads. He's got a big bling chain on his neck too the thing about him is if an enemy he has spy network if an enemy unit is set up on the battlefield after the game begun anytime after you can select a friendly auto malice unit within six inches and they can immediately fire overwatch Ooh. and it doesn't say that that, that ability is once but, you That's know again dope. they don't have a lot of um they don't they don't have a lot of firepower i mean i guess you could choose the inquisition land raider p uh proteus <laughs> then make that make that shoot, man. That would be. What about the brutal. chair? The chair looks pretty beefy. Yeah, I think the key thing: quad heavy bolters. I'm talk, I'm about the Land Raiders, which is heavy twelve. But how many quad heavy bolters does that have? That means that when you come on, if you choose the Order of Malleus, he can make them shoot that twice. At, I mean, he can make that shoot at you. What does Karamazov have? He looks he like he's got a big gun. He ha oh, he has a melter. Uh, He's a mastercrafted multi-melter and a mastercrafted uh, uh, power sword. And he, he has the throne of judgment stomping feet. <laughs> you know, he normally has four attacks. He can make six attacks with that. Each one is two damage. Like, yeah, I'm just going to get my chair here and walk around in it. I've seen it. I can't remember. I played against it. And I think I, I think when I played against it, I shot it at range. I was a fully a Necron player at that point. <laughs> I just didn't like. I said, "That's an awesome model. It's got to go." What's the difference between a mastercrafted multi-melta and a multi-melta? Because I don't see a difference. What's the range on a regular multi-melta? I think it's 24? the same. Oh, and this is thirty. This is thirty. Okay, so that must be what it is. So he's mul he's mul he's melting at you at fifteen inches. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, he has a dread reputation. Enemy psychers within one inch subtract one from any psychic test and any infantry units within 12 inches subtract one from their morale. But let's get to that psychic. That means if you have him, he's subtracting one. 
um, and you have him with some Sisters of Silence. And each one of, I think each one of those units subtract two. You could do some stuff. Lavelle, you should just make a full Inquisitor list. Just run a Supreme Command detachment with like five of these guys, you know? Gray you know, here, here's my problem. The models are great. However, um, although the models are great, one of the problems is command. Command points really, really matter. Do they, though? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's take a short break. We'll come back and wrap up the show. Cool. Thank you for joining us for episode 19 of Crew Shake. And again, excuse the delay since our last recording. We are going to try to bang out one more holiday special episode before the end of 2019, end of 2018 rather, to wrap up what has been season two of Crew Shaken. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. This was a fun episode. I look forward to continuing our discussion next week. We will, or next episode, we'll do some uh, some holiday special shenanigans for sure. Thank you for listening for Crew Shaken. I have been Tim. I'm Laval. I'm Carlo. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>